This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Almighty God, you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Speak to us, we pray, through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. According to the latest figures published by the BBC yesterday, the coronavirus has spread to more than 123 countries and claimed the lives of well over 5,000 people. The World Health Organization reports more than 142,000 confirmed cases. And we know, or we think we know, that the real numbers are almost certainly much higher than that, as likely most of the people who have the virus have not yet been tested. We see pictures from Italy, where the entire country has been in lockdown for almost a week, and similar measures now being added in France and Spain. And it's, it's hard for us to take in and, and process what we're seeing. In these days of fake news and misinformation, with the ability for anyone to tweet whatever conspiracy theory they want, and when leaders have withheld information or told lies, it's genuinely hard to know what is really true. And on top of the spread of this global pandemic, now among us across our nation and confirmed here in our own Allegheny County, added to all of that, of course, there is this widespread anxiety and fear. Local, state, and national emergencies have been declared. Schools are closed. Sporting events have been canceled or postponed. Shops are closing. And we, too, have suspended our regular services here at Church of the Ascension. Not, I might say, out of fear, but as one way that we can play our part to love our neighbor by seeking to slow down the spread of this virus. And the day after we uh, announced uh, that decision, uh, our own mayor, the mayor of Pittsburgh, announced the ban on gatherings of more than 250 people beginning tomorrow morning. And given that we normally have uh, more than that at each of our Sunday services, I have to say it feels just a little bit surreal this morning, standing here before what is largely an empty physical space, that there are um, eight of us here, there are five staff, there's one of our church wardens and our two uh, tech support guys, a uh, special shout out to Tyler and Jay, thank you, who've made this possible on such short notice. But that said, I am absolutely delighted that many people are participating from home, in and around Pittsburgh, and from far away. Welcome. So, how are we to respond to all of this? In times of anxiety, fear, and distress, our ancient hymn book, The Psalms, is a wonderful place for us to turn. And that's what we're going to do this morning. On this third Sunday in Lent, the psalm appointed for today is Psalm 95. And this psalm is a very well-known psalm to many Christians 
those who are familiar with the service of morning prayer will know that Psalm 95 is one of the options to use at the start of this service. It's called the Venite, which is the Latin word for the opening word in that psalm, come. And this scripture is a wonderful gift to us today as it bids us come together, albeit virtually this morning. We have come before God, the one to whom we sing our praises. Psalm 95 bids us do three things. First, focus on God. Second, remember the big story, God's story, His story throughout history. Third, do what God tells us to do. So first, focus on God. There are times in our lives when maybe we simply don't know how to respond to the circumstances of our lives. We may not know what to pray or even how to pray. We don't have words to express what is in our hearts. In such times, the Psalms often give us the words that we need to sing or shout or cry or groan or whisper. I know there have been times in my life when this has been very true for me, when I have felt such fear and despair, such sorrow and helplessness that I needed help. I needed to use another's words to be able to pray. Well, Psalm 95 is one such psalm. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and show ourselves glad in him with psalms. Why? Because the psalmist reminds us, the Lord is a great king, a great God, and a great king above all gods. So whatever is happening around the globe today, we sing to the Lord. Whatever is going on in your city, school, or neighborhood, we give thanks to the Lord our maker. Don't misunderstand what's going on here or what the psalmist is saying. We're not thanking God for the coronavirus or our grief or whatever may be weighing heavily on us today. No, we are thanking God for who he is and for his goodness, his kindness, mercy, faithfulness, and love, which endure forever. Amen? Whatever is happening in your life, in your relationships, in your family, with your health, at work, and in your hearts and minds, we remember with the psalmist that the Lord is a great God, that he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his own hand. In the words of the author of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand 
of the throne of God. And you know, that's where Jesus sits, interceding for you and for me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is Lord, and therefore we need not fear. So that's the first thing. We focus on God. The second thing Psalm 95 bids us do is to remember the story of God's work in history. In the last few verses of that psalm, the psalmist reminds us of something that happened in the wilderness. He refers to a time when God's people hardened their hearts in the day of provocation and in the day of temptation in the wilderness. And those words um, translated provocation and temptation in the prayer book translation of this psalm are actually place names. And the place names, and you'll find them in most translations of the Bible, certainly uh, contemporary ones, are Meribah and Massah. Meribah translates as provocation or quarreling, and Massah as testing or temptation. And we saw that in our Old Testament passage that Andrea read earlier from Exodus 17. It fills in some of the details for us as to what this is referring to in Psalm 95. And very briefly, the context is that the people of Israel had been rescued by God under Moses' leadership. God had brought the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the wilderness to begin their journey into the Promised Land. And yet, right after this miraculous rescue, they start to complain and grumble. God had provided them with manna, literally all that they needed to eat. The Bible describes manna as bread from heaven. Um, like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Well, where we join the story in Exodus chapter 17, right after the giving of the manna, there we find the people complaining again. Before they had been hungry, or perhaps me might say they were hangry. Well, this time they're thirsty. Verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and the livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried out to God, not in anger, but in desperation and for help. And God tells him to go ahead of the people with some of the elders, and to take his staff and to strike a rock, promising that water would come out of it. Well, Moses did this, and the water flowed. I think it's worth noticing that there's a huge difference between the complaining, whining, whinging, quarreling, and provoking that the people did to Moses and to God, and the crying out to God that Moses did. Crying out to God in desperation for ourselves, for another, for a wayward people, and especially in times of a national or international crisis, is a really good thing to do. We're actually going to do precisely this at the end of today's service. Indeed, this is a practice well attested in Scripture and in history. Last weekend, I was reminded by one of our parishioners, Bill Campbell, who's a scholar of medieval history, that in times of plague... The church has conducted petitionary processions 
We'd planned to do one at our 11 o'clock service, but it, we thought it would be a bit lame with only seven or eight of us. But our prayer book provides us with the Great Litany, which is a series of petitions for just such a time as this. It's often used in the beginning of Lent. And uh, you'll see if you've printed out our service sheets, and if not, don't worry, we'll refer you to the prayer book. But uh, where there's a, a final set of prayers, and there's a rubric before it that says, the supplication is especially appropriate in times of war or of great anxiety or of disaster. I think you'll agree with me that whatever else the COVID-19 pandemic is or may become, we are in the midst of a time of great anxiety. So crying out to God is one thing that we can do for ourselves and on behalf of others. Indeed, it's one way that we love our neighbors as ourselves. I realize, however, that not everyone is panicked by the coronavirus. But whether you are panicked too much, or dare I say, not enough, this pandemic will, God willing, eventually come to an end. Even though hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people will die because of this new virus, God is still faithful. So how do we respond in the face of pandem pandemic, anxiety, and fear? Well, first, we look to God. Second, we remember God's faithfulness. And third, we do what God tells us to do. And so I want to encourage you this week to turn to Psalm 95 each day and lean into the gift of the Psalms. Also, do check out the resources on our website, including a link to an excellent daily office app developed by someone in our congregation. As well as praying, there are other things that we can do. We can redouble our efforts to love our neighbor, and we can do this by following the advice of the World Health Organization and the CDC to be rigorous in hand-washing and observing social distancing. This is very difficult to do, to keep away from people. But this can help slow the spread and may prevent our hospitals from being overwhelmed. As Christians, this is something that we can do, even though it is counterintuitive. We can also love our neighbor by reaching out to them, via phone, via text messaging or email, to those that we might otherwise not be able to see. We can also check in on any older neighbors we may have, or others who may be isolated, and see if we can help them. Maybe they need help with grocery shopping, or in getting a prescription filled, or there may be other ways. At the end of Psalm 95, we see not only a reminder of God's faithfulness in the past, but also a calling to listen to God's voice and not to harden our hearts in the present. Verse 8, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. I apologize that the word not was accidentally omitted in the online version today, but it is there. You may check later. Hard-heartedness 
is a very real problem today. And let me say this. Hard-heartedness is more serious and ultimately more life-threatening than any virus. For when it comes to ultimate things, the things of God and of our eternal destiny, hard-heartedness left unchecked leads to separation from God. Hard-heartedness is selfish and demanding. It's the condition that believes and acts as if we are at the center of things, not God. That is why, in the face of our own hard-heartedness, we must look again, we must turn again to God and remember His faithfulness and do that which He calls us and commands us to do. Well, our gospel reading this morning sheds some light on how we can do this. The encounter of Jesus with the woman at the well is a profound and powerful account of what it means to listen and respond to Jesus. Jesus rests his weary legs by a well in the heat of the day. He is tired, hungry, and thirsty. He's alone. The disciples have gone into the city to buy food. And then someone else arrives. We're not given the name of this person, but we do learn three things, all of which could have been reason for Jesus not even to have spoken to the person. First, she was a woman, and there was a rabbinic citation which said this, a man should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with someone else's wife because of the gossip of men. Second, this particular woman was a Samaritan. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They were arch enemies, each sure that the others were heretics, with divisions between them going back hundreds of years. And third, this particular Samaritan woman was of dubious character, having had five husbands. She was now living with a sixth man to whom she was not married. So if ever there was a person who could have been hard-hearted, surely it was she. And yet, her heart was open. Her heart was not hard, was not closed. Yes, she does seem a bit wary. The questions Jesus asked her were challenging. But Jesus didn't treat her as some sort of project. He doesn't get all weird because she's a woman or a Samaritan. Jesus treats her as a person, a fellow thirsty human who had come to the well in the middle of the day. Though he was the Son of God, Jesus was also fully man. He got tired and hot and thirsty, and he asks her for a drink. Jesus spoke to this woman out of his own vulnerability, and that's something we can do. We can love our neighbors out of our own vulnerability. Not because we've got it all together. Usually we don't. Why do you suppose the woman had come at the middle of the day when it's baking hot? Very likely, so that she wouldn't bump into any of the other women in the town. So she wouldn't have to face the humiliation and shame of her living arrangements. But notwithstanding this, Jesus kindly compassionately and profoundly affirms this Samaritan woman. He talks with her. He treats her with dignity. And 
he offers to her living water. He doesn't get into the state of her lifestyle. He doesn't need to. But neither does he avoid it. He asks her to go call her husband, even though he knew she didn't have one. But whatever the subtext, whatever the backstory, and we don't know what that backstory might be, and everyone has a story, Jesus cared about this individual. He saw her. She mattered to him. They were both thirsty, but this woman was desperate. She needed hope, dignity, restoration. She needed what only Jesus could give, which is living water. And likewise, today, we are a hungry and thirsty people. And we live among hungry and thirsty people. And our deepest thirst can only ever be quenched by the living water that Jesus gives. Today, if you are feeling parched and in need of that life-giving water, ask God to give you a drink. What is this living water? It is life from the source of life, from Jesus, the giver of life. So many today are thirsty for meaning, thirsty for love, thirsty for significance. And yet, tragically, so often their search for something that will satisfy these God-given longings lead people desperately to drink the Kool-Aid of the empty promises that materialism or capitalism or socialism or self-helpism or whatever other ism that they may chase after and worship and drink. For some, it may take a lifetime before they wake up from the soul-destroying intoxication of the drink that never satisfies and the headiness of success prestige, fame, position, money, sex, or power, which all eventually dissipate. And so I wonder this morning whether maybe, just maybe, this coronavirus pandemic will get our attention. You know, right now, it kind of does feel surreal. But the coming week's blessings, uh, joys, and I dare say challenges of having your kids home from school for an indefinite period may begin to stretch us more and more. You know, last week's jokes about toilet paper hoarding may become less funny if this thing drags on and more shops, not just the Apple stores, start to close. And if or when people that we know, that we love, get sick and die, maybe, just maybe, more people will cry out to God. Maybe we will be more willing to bring our hard hearts to God for his softening and his healing. A national crisis presents us with all sorts of opportunities to be the church, to be Christians, to serve others, to reach out to our neighbors, to see how we can help in a myriad practical ways. The psalmist says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. 
And Jesus offers us living water today, this 15th day of March. Water that cleanses and heals, water that quenches our thirsty souls. It's not just our hands that we need to wash, our hearts need to be cleansed also. Each and every one of us constantly needs the living water that only Jesus can give. I know I need this water. I need this living water every day. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will make me clean. Nothing else will quench my thirst. At the end of the day, being a Christian is not about religion or about knowing the right answers to the hard questions of life. It's not about being good. It's not about trying harder or working harder. Rather, it is about being thirsty and recognizing our need to drink the living water that Jesus freely offers. So how do we do this? Well, here's an idea. If you are a baptized Christian, try this this week. Each time you wash your hands, multiple times a day for at least 20 seconds, remember the water of your baptism. Remember the cleansing love of Jesus. Think on that. Or here's another idea. Each time you're thirsty or drink a glass of water, remember the water of life that Jesus gives. And finally, um, practical stuff for now, if you get fearful or anxious, can I just say this, that consuming more news, more social media will not bring you peace. It will be like being thirsty and drinking seawater. Quench your thirst instead with Jesus, the living water. Jesus invites you to come and drink from the spring of the water of life, to turn to him and receive cleansing from sin and the new life that satisfies. It's not magic. It doesn't mean you'll never face hurt or heartache. It doesn't mean you'll never stumble or fail. It doesn't mean you won't get sick or die. But it does mean that your deepest longings for love, for forgiveness, for acceptance and for meaning will be satisfied by and in God himself. Lord, have mercy upon us. Amen.